HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. What's the single most influential culinary trend of our time? You might be surprised. Find out next on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And the single most influential culinary trend, or certainly the most pervasive culinary trend, according to my guest today, is fast food. And there's no denying that it's absolutely everywhere, and unfortunately a trend that I think is here to stay and has been for a while. In fact, you can drive through any city in this country, and the roads are littered, and I use that word intentionally, littered, with signs, neon signs, billboards, another mile before you hit the next McDonald's or Sonic Burger or Taco Bell or what? Every, and in fact, you can go to some cities and it's kind of like, you know, the malls in America. You have two blocks away, there's another mall and they have the exact same stores. Well, you go two miles and pass by all those signs of all those fast food joints. And then at the end of that two miles, it starts all over again with the next row of fast food joints. Exact same order, exact same fast foods. In fact, it's so pervasive and has been quite an influence on our culture, influencing the way that Americans eat, and indeed, people in other countries as well, that my guest has written a book, not one book, he's written many books on the topic, but my guest is Andrew Smith, the venerable Andrew Smith. Andy, you have written 28 books, and I think three of them, now you define this one just as fast food. His newest book is Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and the hungry. And the hungry. And the hungry. I expect that Ennio Morricone music to go. 
you know, to be playing in the background. But you, um, but you've also written about fast food and junk food, and uh, the encyclopedia of junk food. It, it's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> yeah, we had to eat your, your way through a lot of burgers, no doubt. But it's, but, a, t- it's a tax deduction. Think of it that way. <laughs> but for this purpose, I want you to define for me. Well, be, well, the reason I first I'm going to. I'm going to tell you a little statistic I just heard on the radio last weekend. As of May, McDonald's is in first place at 33%, and Starbucks is in second place at 12% of the market share of fast food establishments. Right. All right, no, Starbucks, I, I'm, I don't consider fast food, but I guess it's fast food. So what I want you to do, and that's my reason for the question, define for me for this purpose this show this book what you mean by fast food fast food is food prepared outside the home that um, is typically purchased and consumed outside the home as well by by customers so we're not talking about junk food like a bag of chips in the store we're talking about establishments. No, for me it's it. establishments but but fast food is nothing new it goes back millennia every time there's when there's cities there's fast food and it's, we call it street, street food, food but it's right. the exact same thing well that's why i wonder how do you how do you um make that discrimination between street food and and fast food, because a lot of these statistics really don't apply to street food. Correct. My my focus was on the fast food industry, which is the, the 20 large major multinational corporations that have influenced the world and what, what we eat and the way we eat it. And we know who number one is, for sure, right? Well, there's, um, there's, yes, McDonald's gets all all the credit or the blame, or depending the blame. on okay. depending on how you look at it. But um, there are now there must be about a thousand different fast food chains, mm-hmm. and there's huge diversity of them. And I mm-hmm. think that's often lost when we think of fast food. We immediately think of Burger King and KFC and and um, and McDonald's. But now um, there's fast food chains that are launched in other countries that are expanding abroad, and many of them are coming here. Other foods of that. Of that country, of that nation, well, the fast food, or are they takeoffs on every fast food uh, um, company has learned to globalize. I mean, they have a globalize. Well, they have they have a uh, you know they have a global image, and then they localize their food. And uh-huh. so, if you go to McDonald's in India, I absolutely guarantee you they're not going to be serving beef. Uh, right. So, I mean, they learn local flavor, local diversity. Unlike the United States, when the when the fast food industry was launched, the, the goal was to have exactly the same food. The same menu, tasting exactly the same, whether you were in Maine or whether you were in Southern California. McDonald's University, right? So, so that that was the. I mean, the thought was that you knew exactly what you were getting, and um, and that was what worked in the United States, and it worked in other developed countries. But as you began to expand out to other culinary traditions, you needed to change things, and that's exactly what the fast food industry. They've learned. By, by making mistakes and by having successes. And hmm. So they use so the other countries basically use the business model. And yeah, they may have some common on products. Um, for instance, in, in India, they do have burgers, but they're not based on beef. Um, and uh, obviously, um, the, the pork industry is not very active in um, um, in, in the Middle East. And so, I mean, you've got all the, the obvious sorts of things, but it's also it's the flavorings that are added that and other additional items that are part of the menu. Well, that was my other question. Why, you know, the why. Why do you think, well, the why it became influential is, is so influential is, is certainly subjective. I mean, it was an easy, you know, depends on depends on people's needs. But how also is another one. How? You just said additives and flavorings. And we know that Frito-Lay, for instance, has all these 
mysterious, well, they're not so mysterious anymore, but these chemical additives that actually make you want to eat more. It's called salt, fat, and sugar. <laughs> and some of those other things they well, sprinkle they, on that coat the top of my, my, the roof yeah, of my I mouth. Mean, and <laughs> of course. Uh, I mean, what made McDonald's a success was never the hamburger, at least not in the early, early uh, days. It was always the French fries. And when, um, due to a whole variety of reasons, when McDonald's became as large as they had, they had to change the type of French fry that they were making. And now it's the flavoring on the French fries that makes McDonald's fries different than those they, from Burger They had King. to stop frying them in suet, right? In well, yeah, but not just that, but they actually have a, a layer of, of sugar, uh, of sweetener on top of it and flavorings on it. So the flavor that comes through on the French fries has relatively little to do with the, with the potato and has everything to do with the additives that are put on. Well, this influence, I mean, influencing the way we eat, obviously fast food has been blamed for myriad other problems in our society. Um, Yes. Labor practices, obesity, and and all kinds of other things. All right. So so it it has come under such political criticism. Most of it deserved? Um, sure, I think I think even even many of the people in the industry would say they they agree with that. So the the question is, where does the industry go from here? And virtually every large chain is beginning to experiment with new products. They've done some changes. Obviously, the more pressure that others put on them, the, the more quickly the changes are are underway. But some some changes have occurred. Some are substantive. Most are are public relations. But uh, but they're aware of their problems, particularly in the United States. Now, again, the fast food industry in the developed world is viewed very differently than it is in the developing world. In the developing world, um, it's viewed extremely positively and. Um, it's not the poor that are, or those who are economically deprived that are going into the McDonald's in the 128 countries. It really is uh, people who are middle class and they just want to treat and yeah. they want something unusual. And, and from my standpoint, occasionally going to a fast food uh, is not going to fast food establishment isn't going to harm you, and you aren't going to die immediately afterwards. And um, so there's lots of, of good things about it. And, and for me, traveling in a number of countries, I, I must admit that I do go into McDonald's on occasion. And it's not necessarily just to sample the food. It's to go into the bathrooms that are clean. So there's <laughs> so there's lots of reasons on yeah. why the fast food industry has been successful elsewhere. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I know they've made some changes, um, speaking of McDonald's in particular. But then there's Burger King and Jack in the Box and Sonic Burger and all those Taco Bell. When I said the roads were littered with the signs, and I, and I was showing my uh, my dis- distaste for them, but indeed they are. In fact, in some uh, urban era, urban settings, it's been a blight on yes, on different absolutely, communities. and that's covered in the book. I mean, it's extensively discussed. So. And you know, you have this beautiful, maybe historic yeah. district with this big old golden arch. I mean, you know, they they've been obviously they've been taken to task for that in a lot of places. So let's talk about the history. We, you were on before when you wrote a book about oh, what haven't you written about. You've written, you, I have to say, I, I didn't give you full credit in, your, in the bio. I mean, you have written 28, at least 28 books and um, edited so many more wonderful encyclopedias of food and It's, and, it's a and tough cultures. job. Somebody's really got to do it. And you're you know? doing a good job of it, Andy. Um, and you are the editor of this whole global series yes. of culinary history, yeah. which is This is the first book wonderful. that's coming out. Uh, the second one will be out in a couple of weeks on genetically modified ingredients. 
and we have people who have opinions, and we are still looking for authors, by the way. So, uh, okay. Uh, right. And we have another book that's underway by a person who uh, is a, um, a host for a program here at Heritage Radio, and uh, Katie Keeper is doing the um, what's what's the matter with meat? And so uh, it's a great book. I've read I've read the uh, initial she's, things. and she's yeah, passionate yeah. about it. She's she's terrific. Um, she hosts the show What Doesn't Kill You here on Heritage Radio Network. You, what what I wanted to say too is that your books are um, you bring food history and culinary history to uh, to the the population at large. You make the you make the books fun. You make the topics fun, and yet it's packed with statistics and inf- important information. But you don't make it so dry and so. Uh, Untouchable that people are are afraid to you know open that book and, and read about the history. When, of when do America's I get the URL for this? I want to put this up on my website. That sounds great. I, you know, I don't want to share it with my publishers too. Ask me for a blurb, but, but, and, and the, I will. The quick answer is: I, I think that's my role, and my role. There's lots of people who are doing basic research, and I and I, I think the world of them, and I use their material. And you need to communicate the problems. You need to communicate the issues. You need to communicate the good things. You need to communicate the history to a popular audience, and and that's pretty much what I've targeted most of my writing. And you also organize fantastic conferences for those who probably a little more involved in it on a professional level. We had a wonderful conference a couple weeks ago on uh, manuscript uh, cookbooks, and I'm absolutely delighted to report that very soon the uh, videotapes for all of the sessions will be online, and in my opinion, it was one of the better conferences that I heard similar comments. Uh, In fact, just last night, I heard similar comments on that same thing. We're considering doing another conference next year on uh, community cookbooks and on charity cookbooks and um, and a whole series of things that are related both to history as well as current yeah. day. So when we just sit here talking about fast food, know that it goes a lot deeper than that. And and back to fast food, we were going to talk about the beginnings. We, and we were on talking about the history of hamburgers uh, a couple of years ago, yep. and we talked about the history of McDonald's yep. there. You can research that show on my show page. It is the history of hamburgers with Andy Smith. But um, the... To tell people just sort of the the beginnings of you say fast food goes back millennia. Right. Let's talk about varieties of fast food. Okay, it was street food. You have people. Right. Street food is the by far up until the late nineteenth century. That would be the way people would get fast food. And and what happens in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century is you have automobiles coming along, and you can't 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 be selling food in the middle of the street and have cars go down it at the same time. So you had zoning laws that came in, and large numbers of people who were selling street food had to get. Uh, contracts and they had to uh, follow laws and orders and large numbers of them actually opened up storefronts and it's not just with what happened um, with hamburgers but what happened uh, Greek diners will come along because of that people are moved out of the streets and they're moved into and they move into places where they can begin to sell food in internal uh, and so the, the whole everything shifts beginning in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And that's exactly what happens with the hamburger industry. It starts as a push cart with somebody frying a burger in a in a cart and putting a bun around the outside and, and selling it to people. And when when it becomes necessary for them to move off the street, they begin to open up operations. And that's exactly how hamburgers got their start. 
And so McDonald's came along. Well, you have fast food chains that that are launched in the 1920s. White Castle is the, is the obvious obvious model, but they don't. While they uh, certainly are a chain, they don't franchise. And uh, what McDonald's will do is not only are they a chain that they will franchise, and it just so happens that the person who does the franchising is extremely knowledgeable about how to franchise. How you control the franchisees, uh, and so right now, hundreds of pages of of requirements with regard to um, fast food establishments, and and the goal is to keep to keep it constant. Uh, unlike um, A N W Root Beer, which franchised early on, but only things that the stores sold that were common were were was the root, root beer. beer, and they and they had they they could have sold anything else. Chili so dogs weren't constant. Uh, not not in the early days, but but later on. Yeah. Yeah. So so you had a whole shift and change that went on at that point. I, I I think McDonald's is the model that the fast food industry follows. As soon as it becomes successful, virtually everybody else from uh, KFC to Burger King to Wendy's uh, will take a look at how McDonald's operates and they will try to improve on that model. But that's the model that uh, is, is the basis of the mm-hmm. industry today. And, of course, we're not talking just hamburgers because there are so many other foods. That, well, Taco Bell be, you know, was the first, I guess, big one to come along, interestingly enough, owned by. <laughs> um, but they were the first big one to come along that wasn't a hamburger. Um, well, there were uh, KFC was was KFC, er, of course. Er, early yeah. on, yeah. and uh, Der Wiener Schnitzel, now Wiener Schnitzel in the West Coast, was another one. And, and here, um, of course, um, you have Netix and you had hot dog chains. Um, so, um, so you have a, a diversity of food. But there, in theory, there's no reason on why those are the foods that have to be the core of fast food industry. Right. And that's what a number of fast food new chains are coming along and saying: you can have healthy food, you can have salads, you can have vegetables vegetarian food, you can have vegan food, and you can have a chain, and you can still make money, and you can still be efficient, and you can still serve good food in, in addition to the types of foods that are being served elsewhere. And that answered my next question, because you were saying, well, it's been around, fast food's been around for millennia. Anything that was quick, whether it's a, you know, a sandwich convenient. was you know, convenient, convenient, right. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, when it become, became industrialized, my question was, is, but is all fast food bad food? It doesn't, as you just said. It doesn't, it doesn't have, have to be. Uh, much of the food that is served is high in calories, uh, high in fat, high in salt, and um, and those are problems. And and some in the fast food industry are trying to address those. But there is no reason on why you can't have tasty food that <laughs> isn't necessarily high in salt, high in fat, um, and and high in uh, in, in sugar. So. Yes, you can have it. There are some good examples of of chains that are that are starting up around America and other countries. So yes, you can have a healthy fast food chain. Hmm. But how can you go into McDonald's and have a salad and not get French fries? Well, <laughs> therein lies the problem. I mean, what McDonald's is doing is selling food that people like, um, and uh, they, if they if they do sell salads, uh, as far as I understand, they don't make any money for the company, but they put them there so that when parents take their kids in there, the parents can eat the salad and feel good about it while their kids are eating the high fat, <laughs> high salt, and high sugary uh, foods that are available in in, in other. Well, and you just, and you brought up, you know, the word parents. And it is, I mean, fast food 
certainly is a relief to so many parents who now, you know, both of them are working long hours. Or you just and, have a single parent. Yeah. And, uh, and, and inconvenience matters. And um, for somebody working full time, uh, which often means not just eight hours, but 10 hours and coming home and trying to deal with uh, kids who are hungry and want food now. Um, I mean, that's one of the one of the reasons on why fast food has been successful, and particularly when they've targeted children, which um, I object to from advertising and promotional standpoint. Um, and it's one of the whole chapters in the book that I take fast food industry and, to and we're going to talk about that too later after we come back from a short break. Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Ann Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Andy Smith about fast food. His newest book is Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry, and and we're striking out at all some of the bad, the bad fast food joints, but they're not all bad. And we didn't even mention pizza. I mean, pizza is a fast food, too, it, certainly a convenience food when it's prepared outside the home. I'm sure many of the pizza joints are putting a lot of stuff in their pizzas to make them taste mighty no, good. really? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've had some of those big chain pizzas, but I'm yeah, I'm sure it's there. When you're here at Roberta's, how can you go exactly? For it? You know, exactly, tough, we're at the choice. mecca of pizza in Brooklyn here. Um, what we were talking during the break, you and I were talking about our first experiences. We don't want to date ourselves. But no, uh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> you first. When I was minus twenty years old, <laughs> my my first McDonald's experience was nineteen fifty five, and there was absolutely nothing like it. I mean, I can still remember the first day of walking up. There was no indoor dining. It was you drive up your car, you get out of your car, you go up and order. They had a sixty second rule where they press the button, um, and sixty seconds later the 
food would would come out. Something like that Domino Pizza thing. You'll have your pizza. And <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if they ever followed yeah. that through on that. But but there were only five or six items on the menu. And as I said, their burgers, in my opinion, weren't that great. But the French fries were delicious, and so was the soda. And so, uh, but it was clean. It was white. You could see inside. And in 1955, they only had male teenagers in there. There were no <laughs> females. They were running and scurrying about, and they were doing their business. And um, it was just an experience which um, was nothing like it in, in America at that time. So uh, I, think my, of, I think my first experience was 58 or 59. So I, I you know, you beat me there, so, <laughs> fortunately. But the other thing is what I'm is important to to make note of at that time when when McDonald's started was that the portions were a whole small. lot smaller. Oh, very small. Yeah. I mean, the French fries came in a small bag. Right. That and I mean, small. You'd say like maybe I, I don't know in ounces and, or and but they did have a small soda and a large soda, but the large soda is about the size of the small, small soda today. That's right. And Do the they burgers, even sell small sodas today. I, I don't know. I think they only had one ounce of meat in them. I, I, I don't remember exactly what they had in there, but it was very little. In the buns, and they were very like squishy, flat. And yeah. You could eat them in three or four bites, and yep. it was yep. yeah. And that was it. And yeah. uh, and that met met one's needs and um and there were 15 cents for a hamburger and uh, 12 cents for a soda i mean it was really low cost and for the initial target for mcdonald's was suburban america suburbs were uh, increasing dramatically after world war ii with families moving out um, and um and there was no food there were no restaurants there were no grocery stores in the suburbs and so in many ways mcdonald's looked at this as that's the opportunity and that's the target and yeah. it was only later that they moved into inner cities well, they they hit on a need, and boy, well, what, what the a success! Th- initially, they thought their target was families, which indeed it was. And then, beginning in the '60s, they, much to their surprise and, and uh, shock, they found out that the real target was children. Mm. And so, uh, with uh, 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 the Ronald McDonald and the targeting of family and Happy children's meals, meals and yeah. toys and everything else came along, and that was. That was a main, a main, a main target for all fast food establishments. Well, and you know, and that's, I mean, the, the health issues, right? You know, take it where you want. We talked about that. That it's, you know, you, it's they, they're loaded. The food, not, and no, we're not talking just McDonald's. We're talking about so many of these yes. fast food places that the, the meals are just packed and laden with calories. And you look at his you know, throughout history, and that's why I mentioned the portion sizes. We've, I mean, we've tripled. Is it? I don't know. I don't. You must know the statistics. Tripled or quadrupled our the size has been extremely larger. Yes, but I want to. Far be it for me to defend the fast food industry, but uh, a recent study just came out um, a few weeks ago that compared fast food with fast casual. So in this case, it is Chipotle and mm-hmm. Panera Bread and whatnot, and they found the average meals were higher in calories for the fast casual than they were for the fast food, fast food, the typical fast food. And then there was a study a few years ago out of Boston. They went around to just... Uh, ethnic restaurants, including American restaurants and Chinese restaurants and Italian restaurants, and they compared the main meals that were served there with the fast food. <laughs> they found that they were four or five hundred calories higher than the fast food um, uh, meals. And so we think that the food that's being served in, in restaurants and in many restaurants, it is better, but it isn't necessarily, and I think that's an issue. Uh, well, unfortunately, a lot of teens you know, consider it a snack. 
too. Yes, well, there's another problem. I mean, the real target has been, for many of the fast food industry, it's been around schools and after after school, particularly when both parents are working or um, kids are waiting for sports events to happen and things like that, they will go to fast food establishments, they will spend some time in there with their friends, and they will consume a large fries and uh, in addition to the traditional meals that they mm-hmm. eat. So it's extra calories and extra fat and extra salt. I mean, I think nothing of having a slice of pizza right before dinner. I mean, you know, and, and pizza, pizza sort of, they... Why are you into pizza? I know, because I, I don't, I guess I'm watching, You're watching people, people, I'm watching eat, people pizza. eat pizza. <laughs> I mean, they escaped, you know, a lot of the blame. But then again, you know, you, you, you know, because, oh, I, because it's healthy, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's bread with some tomato sauce on it. Mm. Yeah, but what's in the tomato sauce, you know, especially in some of these larger organizations, a lot of sugar, a tremendous amount of sugar. Uh, I mean, there's a huge amount of calories in pizza. People think it's, and it can be healthy and it can be good good calories too, but at the same point, um, right now, the real problem with the restaurant menu labeling is coming from the pizza um, industry, which complains bitterly that they don't want to list the calories of the pizza there because you you can order sausage on this and that increases the calories and you can order this and so there are some good reasons on why they're complaining but the main reason is i think many people would be shocked about the number of calories that that are that are in pizza what happened to fruit well actually the washington post uh, published an interesting article just uh, early this week that fruit would be consumed uh, more fruit would be consumed by children if you serve, like apples, if you serve them sliced. Yes. So, you know, send that idea out to some of these establishments. Well, that's offer uh, that as there, a there are really good things that are happening in school food. And that's, yes. And, and, yes, yes. and one of the things that they're learning is it isn't what you serve particularly, but it is the way How? that you serve it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you can serve banana in one way or you can serve it as a, you know, in. Um, so I think the school school cafeterias are learning some of the ins and outs of how to, how to make a good nutritional food available so the kids will eat it and they don't throw it out. And they are so impressionable and so easily targeted and... We yes. started talking about the marketing, you know, with the... That's, that's one of my largest complaints about the fast food industry. Uh, from the 60s on, they've targeted children. And it isn't just advertising on children's programs, television programs. It's also uh, the meals that they serve. It's the toys that they serve. And now the Internet. Uh, I mean, most parents can at least control the television, uh, but you can't control kids on the Internet. And the, the uh, apps that are available from fast food establishments and the large numbers of, of children... Uh, uh, that have access to internet and have access to the to the toys and the games that are played online. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's a way to get around parents so that parents aren't telling the kids you can't watch this, you can't can't do that, or here's the problems associated with it. Yeah. I think that to me is one of the the greatest uh, negative parts of the fast food industry is the fact that they've targeted children. And it's very clear, uh, it's the, I hate to say it, but it's the tobacco industry's model that you catch them young, get them hooked, and they're there for life. And uh, and that's a real problem. Yeah. It'd be interesting to um, to take a poll of some of the the millennials or the, you know, the now the, um, some of the young people in their, well, let's say late 20s, early 30s, and ask them how often they eat McDonald's. Are they, are they you know, did they kind of get tired of it? Did they grow out of it? None, none of my students would do that, so I just want you to know. I'm, 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 would, they wouldn't admit to it. <laughs> not with you asking the question. <laughs> so I'm looking at some people here in my studio to see, I don't know, do they eat McDonald's very often? No, 
No, I see two. No, they never touch the stuff. David, my engineer, and Liz, my assistant, both of them shaking their head. No, no way. Yeah, no, but I would, I would say that you know there is the they are in that sort of the, our new cult of, of you know food education, and I think they are more aware of, of what they eat. That's a nice story. You don't want to believe it. Okay. And the statistics are that uh, those under eighteen, it's something like twenty percent of those under 18 go to a fast food establishment every single day. Wow. Wow. Now, for many of them, it may be just a soda or, or just some fries in the afternoon. It isn't necessarily a full meal, but there is that connection between uh, teenagers in particular, but even younger children and fast food establishments. Well, not only are the younger children eating the food, but then they are getting jobs in the establishment. And that's something we haven't talked about. And that's the history of the labor practices of a lot of these fast food joints. Uh, I call them joints. With with a few exceptions and important exceptions, uh, the labor industry, labor has been totally kept out of the fast food industry, labor unions. Um, and salaries have, in fact, uh, minimum minimum salaries, which are essentially what people make in the fast food industry, have in- declined uh, even though when, when you count in inflation. So kids today or people today who are working in fast food restaurants are actually making less money than what they would have made in 1960. Huh. How is that possible? It's possible because the goal of any industry is to keep your costs down and make a profit um, and make a profit not only for your shareholders, but make a profit for yourself. If you obviously make more money, then your salary goes up. So for CEOs, that's an important part, but also for managers. Managers are, at least in some cases, uh, it has been proven that their salaries have increased depending on how they control cost. So if they can control cost by keeping, uh, preventing people from working 40 hours a week, which increases their their pay or make sure that they don't get any benefits, which is true of, of the vast majority of, of workers in fast food. It's part-time. Is it's no part-time. Benefits. And yeah. then, of course, there's the, if you're under 18, it can be an apprenticeship program. You don't even have to be paid minimum wage. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And uh, these things are, are at least being brought to light now. And when in 2012, when you had the first demonstration here in New York of fast food workers, uh, about 50 of them walking down the street. I looked at that and said, oh, it's a great idea. I wish them the best. And there's chances of them succeeding is zero. But today, uh, the fast food workers are at least on a, on a sliding scale up to $15 an hour. Uh, and I think that's a tremendous increase. And not just fast food workers now, but it's all, all workers in New York State and all workers in California and other states are considering it. And well, there's I think one, it, about, one of our New York phenomenons kind of shook things up, and that it would was never, Shake Shack, right? Well, I'm well, not just Shake Shack, but uh, Shake Shack pays more. Uh, In-N-Out Burger in, ah, uh, in yeah. the West Coast even pays more than that. And so there are some chains that paid a decent wage to employees and, and still made a profit. Uh, and still succeeded in having good products. Uh, so um, I, I really don't pay any attention to those who argue, well, if, the, if we increase the salary of the workers, well, of course the money is going to go up and business is going to go down. And the best estimate is it's, it's only like 20, 23 or 24 percent of the total cost of fast food is, is labor, which is shocking. Hmm. Most, most businesses, labor is the highest part of the cost. And their estimate is that if it goes up to $15 an hour, the, the cost of labor will only increase by a couple percentage points. So it and, just, well, and, and we were just talking, we were talking also at the break that it's, you know, it's, it's not that cheap. I mean, it's, it's not 
uh, depending on on which chain you're going to, and they have sale items, and uh, and then most of most old, old people burgers. who go <laughs> people who go in don't don't buy them, but um, but but that's another part of the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it used to be not only convenient, you know, to go in, you know, easy, convenient, but it used to be cheap, and and really now you get a you know meal for four at one of these places, and you know. You, Go to the grocery store. You know? but, but it's also one of the reasons why grocery stores have now increased uh, food that's uh, that's ready ready to ready to eat. And, right. So and this that that's that was what I wanted to talk. How it's how this fast food industry has inculcated has has just influenced and now seeped into so many different areas of our lives. Take it away, even in grocery yeah, stores. It's it's in grocery stores where you can now walk in. Actually, there's some fast food chains that are now operating inside grocery stores, but there's lots of food that you can buy that you can you can eat immediately. And many many um, supermarkets now have places where you can go sit down and actually eat the food that right. you bought. So right. it isn't that you have to go home and eat it uh, as as historically it would have been true. Uh, but um, you know, the it's not just that. I think it's our lives. Our our lives. Uh, convenience matters more to us. I mean, time for me is money. I've got I've got so much time in the day, and what am I going to do with that? And um, and uh, when I'm home alone, which is not often, but um, and have to do my own preparation, I must admit the convenience is is my main is my main guiding principle i just want something quick i want to get it over with and i want to move on to doing other things so we the 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 image of food in our lives has decreased from what historically it would have been you would have spent hours um, eating a meal with with your family or even if it wasn't hours it would have been a prolonged time even in my childhood our family met six o'clock was dinner time and if you weren't there my mother would save something for you if this if you had a sporting event or something special that you had to go to but essentially you would sit down and you would have a talk and you would communicate about what was going on in our lives or what was going on in the world or whatever topic that people wanted to raise and that's fast food has changed that i mean all you have to do is go into a fast food restaurant gulp pay your money gulp and go don't have to talk with anybody don't have to dress up um, and don't have to clean up afterwards and so it's that convenient culture which part which fast food is part of at convenience foods, I mean, not just in fast food establishments, but convenience foods, you know, across the board have right. have always been um, welcomed and then blamed. I mean, think of sliced bread. I mean, you know, sli- <laughs> you got to think of sliced bread, packaged sliced bread. I mean, it was it was a it was such a boon to to people's you know ease of life. I mean, you can always make a quick sandwich. You could always just take a piece of bread and slather some butter or jelly in it. Well, speaking about sliced bread, I mean, what really changed was it was now children could make their own sandwich. Right. Because prior to this time, you'd had to use a knife, a knife. and uh, depending on the age of the ch- child, you wouldn't want to give a child to have playing with their knives. Uh, so, in this case, sliced bread made it, you could have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or you could make a bologna sandwich. And that, that will become a very important part of the uh, depression, uh, which is... Which, which changes food patterns too. We think we think today of fast food changing food patterns, and it has. But food patterns have been changing for at least the last century, and a lot of things. Cars make a difference in terms of the time amount of time that we have. The internet makes a huge difference. I mean, how many of us? How much? How many hours do we spend? It's not on the saving internet? us time. It's using up our time. Certainly, well, you know, uh, it's a time suck for sure. You know? uh, people make choices. Of yeah. you've got so many, got twenty four hours a day. What are you going to do with that time? 
time, and one of the things that has suffered is the amount of time that people would have spent preparing food, eating food, and cleaning up afterwards. And it's not just fast food; it's it's also uh, the typical food that you prepared food that you buy in a store and bring it home, so that you really don't have to make a, a cake from scratch. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can you can either buy the cake itself, or you can buy the mix and put it together, and, and 45 minutes later you'd have some cake ready to eat. Well, we have covered most of the topics that I wanted to discuss. Um, but what we didn't talk about was what, when a further discussion on the marketing, marketing to children, is you had, some, you had a very novel uh, proposal for some of the fast food industries that I heard you mention. I think it was when you were on uh, Katie's show. I have so many so novel many? All proposals. Right. All right. Uh, <laughs> which, which, which one in particular? <laughs> there? Um, about all the targeting, the money that they that they put into advertising, and maybe they could a little payback. I mean, we got the labor the labor co- the labor problems seem to be somewhat being addressed, as well as some of the caloric problems, and not that they're being. Well, answered, but they're being addressed. I, I personally support attacks on fast food and, and attacks on, uh, on sweet food and attacks on junk food. I mean, and, and the, with the money not going into the city government or the state or the federal treasury, but being specifically used for nutrition education. What is not being done in America today is educating people about nutrition. At least when I went to school, women, not men, but women would take home economics, yeah, home ec- right. and that would include discussions of that. But home economics Economics has largely disappeared, not everywhere, but it's largely disappeared. And there's no place in the in the public school system for a discussion of nutrition and health. And I think that's a major disaster that needs to be corrected. And so where do you get the money to do that? Because it costs money. Uh, And one of the answers is let's let's at least charge extra money for those foods that we know are contributing to obesity, we know are contributing to diabetes, we know are contributing potentially to cancer and all sorts of other linkages for health. Uh, we're paying a fortune on, on health costs because of the foods that Americans are eating, not just because of fast food, but because of the other foods that we're consuming, too. Okay. Uh, Vote Andy Smith for president, I was hoping governor, I was hoping he'd mention that, and particularly in this election. It would be a, a timely sort of thing. platform is we won't tax you, we'll tax the fast well, food. Well, people legitimately raise the issue of saying many of the people who actually go into fast food establishment are those who are uh, of, of the lower economic class, and that for this is it is lower cost than than going yes, into a restaurant, restaurant or going into other places. And so they say this would be a tax on the poor, and my answer is it's a tax that's going to be used to helpfully educate people and ideally to lower uh, medical costs. Uh, and the poor are, are from, when you compare the poor with the well-to-do, it is the poor that are more suffering from the consequences of bad diet. And so at least it seems to me that, uh, yes, I understand the issues that are connected with that. And uh, my choice is uh, I would rather have a tax that goes specifically into helping educate Americans about nutritional issues um, and I'm, I'm all in favor of that. Well, I second that. And you can find out a lot more of Andy's opinions and plans. Do I have opinions? <laughs> he At his website. His website is Andrew F. As for Frank. Andrew F. Smith. Dot com, And his book is, his latest book is Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. And there are so many other books that cover very similar issues, describing the foods that you all know and love, and then where they came from and 
what's good about them, what's bad about them. But this one in particular is something that I think is is um, more of a, it really addresses social issues and and it's a very in an historical context in a historical context. Yes, and that's why you're here for culinary <laughs> history. And it is. I mean, it is part of well, our, people, part of our people food want history. to ignore. They want to ignore the history of fast food for a whole lot of reasons. And and my answer is you need to understand where it came from in order to understand what it, the influence it has today. And we need, we need to make some changes. And um, and that's part of the reasons on why I put this together. So Absolutely. It isn't just the past that's important. It's also understanding how the past influences us today. Great. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining me. And he'll probably be back in... I don't know, a few months when the next book comes out. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I say that facetiously, but I know. It's I finished true. three books. I know you've already finished three. <laughs> hey, I gotta, gotta set aside the time. <laughs> Thanks. Andy Smith, always a pleasure. And thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And join us again on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.